Hey everyone, I'm Mitchell Hora. I'm a farmer from Iowa. And I am Zach Johnson. I farm in West Central Minnesota. And this is the Fieldwork Podcast, which is by farmers, for farmers. Every single episode, we talk about what works and what doesn't in sustainable agriculture. Thank you very much to the Walton Family Foundation for their support this season. So today, Zach, we're going to talk about banking. And for farmers, having a great relationship with your banker is super important. So today, we're going to talk to Mark Schober. He's a guy whose job is to figure out what works and what doesn't for the ag banking industry. The whole thing really boils down to that if the bank can help farmers to find better technology, that they can overall reduce risk and help their farmers to be able to ensure that they have long-term profitability. It's an interesting way to think about banking, honestly. You don't hear that a lot from somebody within the banking industry. And Mark works for Bremer Bank, which is actually currently the ninth largest ag bank in the nation. We need to let you know that we recorded this before Bremer Bank became a sponsor of Fieldwork. It's always fun when that happens because it must mean that the guy from the company didn't run away screaming in pain after he talked to us, right? Yeah, that's a good thing because, I mean, we've had that a lot. That might be where Oprah's at. Maybe we should check on that one. I'd be interested to talk to them more about potentially financing our coconut crop. And ensuring that we have a helicopter because we need transportation to get to our coconut crop. Yeah, otherwise, how how are you going to scout your fields or your beaches? We better get into our conversation here, Zach, and see if we can get that snuck in here. He's going to be surprised to learn that I actually love talking about banking. Let's do it. Let's talk about banking. And you can ask the first question. The first question? Well, first, we should probably say that we got Mark Schoberg with us here from Bremer Bank, and his title is the Director of Specialized Agriculture Solutions. Did I get that right, Mark? That's right. That's right. Awesome. So tell us a little bit about what that involves and what it is that you do with Bremer Bank. We have egg bankers spread out across North Dakota, Minnesota, and Wisconsin. And my role is to seek out new solutions for farmers or internal solutions that revolve around agriculture. We didn't have a call it liaison between all the ag bankers. So when I joined a couple years ago, um, that, that was part of my role and certainly live in, in the strategy space at the same time. So although I, I help all of our bankers do their jobs better, I uh, am actually technically not a banker. <laughs> but, uh, but I work for a bank and I, I, I do anything ag farm. Okay, so... What, what do some of those solutions look like when you talk about seeking out solutions? What, what does that mean exactly? It, it's tough. The, the ag tech space is so wide. Um, you, you can easily get caught uh, wallowing in the waters of, uh, of egg sensory solutions or uh, real-time data capture, which, which are amazing and powerful it, you know, then I have to come back and sit at my desk and, and think long and hard at, all right, this is a pretty cool solution. It may uh, help farmers make in-time or in-season decisions better because they, for example, know exactly what their input costs are, or know exactly what their, their output prices are. How can I integrate this? <laughs> so that's kind of the, the million-dollar question that often occurs. But I, I take a look at, at, at anything um, because if it is, if it is um, you know, monumental on a, a data collection solution that can help a farmer make a decision if they should spray for aphids or not, um, that does trace back to my original uh, purpose of 
um, trying to increase profitability on the customer side because if if yields are going to be higher and, and the ROI on that AFID application is is there and strong, it in turn should decrease uh, credit risk as well. I look at farm management systems, livestock management systems, um, any sort of data collection, soil sensory, uh, remote sensing, real-time sensing, um, insurance solutions, like I said. What, what I thought was pretty interesting just in the last maybe year or so that's picked up a little bit is, is kind of the overlap of ag tech, fintech. And that's one that obviously a bank probably has the, the smoothest road to, to trying to take to market. So as you're looking at some of those solutions now, what's some of your primary focus on what your farmers are asking for or what you guys are looking at bringing to the table? Like, are there some specific needs that you're looking to to really fill at this point in time? Sure. Good, good question. Uh, the solutions that I'm looking for are broad and uh, we're going to take this up like 30, 40, 50,000 feet. I'm looking for anything that will help increase customer profitability. So on the ag side, any ag customer inside the farm gate or outside the farm gate. And at the same time, chances are that will decrease bank risk. Um, and then I'm also looking for anything that's going to create efficiencies for customers or or internally on the bank side. So that can be really a very, very wide array of different types of solutions. Um, I, I live heavily in the ag tech space, seeking out new innovation solutions. So thinking of, of very cutting edge solutions that, uh, that farmers maybe haven't really come across yet or agribusinesses haven't come across yet. Um, with that side, it's always difficult to think about how can a bank play the role of connecting the dots and then also um, really is it the bank's role to play, um, play in, in that ag tech space. Um, and a lot of these solutions also have carryover into different um, different aspects of the bank, like crop insurance, for example. Uh, Bremer has has crop insurance advisors throughout the three states, and um, you know there are, there are many different solutions that can help that. For example, um, it can get as as niche as well. Um, does this type of crop or does this type of solution potentially help potato farmers? For example, we have quite a few of those in our our portfolio, and and we can kind of. Um, focus in and, and bring some of those customers in to bounce some of these ideas off of and see if this is something that uh, Bremer Bank should really play a role in bringing to quote unquote market. So playing off of that, do you have a specific customer or what a specific customer looks like, a typical customer for you and who you work with? We we probably don't have a, have have a typical one internally. We have a few um, a few examples, but um, you know we have as diverse as sugar beet and potato farmers that are extremely large scale. Our footprint's interesting. I mean, the average farmer in North Dakota is in the thousands, and then you get you get down to the the valleys of Wisconsin, and you're in the low hundreds. Um, we have all of those inside. We have very small dairies. We have very large dairies. We have um, really anything in between. So our our um, our average farm customer is one that is forward looking, doesn't really have a size attached to it, but is um, is uh, somewhat progressive and open to um, open to really growing with with a bank like us. That's summarize it a little cheesy, but honestly, that's that's it. You need a forward looking progressive farmer, and that's that's my favorite type of customer. There, those are the ones where I kind of argue with the bankers. You know, make sure you bring me in. <laughs> I want to meet them. Are there other 
banks that are kind of doing the same type of thing? And then, you know, what's been, I guess, kind of a success story here that Bremer has been able to really bring to the table and scale out through your network? Yeah, it, certainly other banks are looking at at playing in this space and helping their customers. I mean, I think every bank that has some sort of ag portfolio that that understands the uh, 12-month cycle for, for a farmer is trying to make their lives easier and make their bankers' lives easier um, and create some efficiencies. So um, we, we are a part of some uh, startup tech accelerators, and most of those are totally open innovation and are, are uh, housed by other, other financial institutions as well. Um, you know, ag tech probably isn't as focused on from the banking sector as, for example, just straight fintech or cybersecurity or, or things of that nature. But other ag banks are definitely looking at this space. And I'd say for the most part, we, we all get along quite well um, because we're, as you guys know, in the agriculture community, Yes, there's competition, but at the same time, typically what's good for uh, one is good for all. And uh, and we're sitting here trying to get agriculture to thrive all together. Um, Bremer has our our uh, our purpose of cultivating thriving communities, and that that truly does uh, incorporate everyone in the community, even if it is other ag banks. For a success story, that that's a good question. Uh, as I was kind of alluding to, I get caught uh, trying to see, trying to think about how we roll these things to market. Um, I think one that has uh, some some good legs, a solution would be on the on the marketing side, trying to get better prices for for farmers. If we um, come in as a trust advisor and are able to uh, make recommendations or or advise our customers at getting connected up with um, marketing firms that we have vetted in some way, shape, or form, that uh, that's a way that we can add value. Now, we certainly don't um, don't require this, but um, our customers that, that have us sitting on that short list of trusted advisors with attorneys and accountants um, usually take our recommendations heavily, and we, we've had some really good traction on the, the marketing side of things. You know, one that I just saw that that came from um, uh, from the Midwest too is just a different way to value um, value iron, and I thought that that was very intuitive, uh, very efficient, very um, easy to use. I'm going off on a tangent here, but if I had to summarize my favorite ag text in one word, I would just say simple. And and this one that values iron is super simple. Um, getting over complicated. First first subsector I mentioned was farm management systems. Talk about a, a segment that got way too complicated. The ones that have good traction are simple ones. You can always layer on um, solutions over time, but hope that helps. That's kind of leads me into my next question here. Maybe this is because I'm a farmer, but I feel commonly like there's so many tech companies out there and there's so much going on within ag tech right now and everybody's coming at us saying try this try that take this data manage your farm this way use this software you know try all these 300 different tools that help you to micromanage everything none of them take into account the fact that i still have to get everything else done i can manage all i want but th at the end of the day dad and i got to be out there driving tractors and turning wrenches sometimes. So do you ever feel overwhelmed by so much tech coming into the space and yet you have a difficult time trying to prove to not just your customers, but also to you whether or not that tech actually provides a good value for the farmer and a return on investment? 
That is spot on. <laughs> it's like, uh, I mean, when I go into evaluation mode, I'm I'm purely acting as a farmer, and you know, nothing grinds my gears worse than a solution coming from Silicon Valley from a team that has never been to Iowa, Illinois, or Indiana, and has no clue what a you know, spacing on corn and soybeans should be, and they're trying to tell me about a solution that uh, that helps strawberries or blueberries or vineyards. You know, those solutions work really well out there first because those are high value crops that uh, that you can prove an ROI quick. I love when these solutions come to the Midwest because if you can prove it on corn and soybeans that have you know these these are successful farmers are margin farmers on corn and soybeans. They're not just boosting yields to boost yields. They're trying to boost margins. If you can win that customer over, sign me up for series you know, B, C, and D after that, because that's, that's going to be the larger customer base. Um, a portion of that frustration really spilled into Bremer's role in trying to bring one of the tech accelerators called Plug and Play into the Midwest. Um, we, we're a part of that one. Um, in a food and beverage vertical in Silicon Valley. And it was great. Um, but this, a lot of the solutions coming from there just weren't trickling down to our customer base in the Midwest and in the Corn Belt to be specific. So that office uh, opened up in, in Fargo, which um, is just a great place kind of on that cusp of where um, really seed genetics are taken off. Let's expand the Corn Belt north and west and not really a better place to, to call home than Fargo. Um, but yeah, I, I, that is very difficult for some of these solutions to, um, to make sure that they are going to have a strong ROI on corn and soybeans. If they do, it's great. If they don't, um, as, as Midwesterners know, there's not a whole lot of watermelons being grown here. I don't know if that solution is going to be the right one to take off. Probably just want to keep that to one or two states. I want to switch it here to um, there's a lot of pressure, it sounds like, coming from the new administration coming in here as well to the banking system on being able to push on investing green and stuff. And I just got off the phone uh, with a local farmer here that his bank um, through the farm credit system is saying, hey, we got to be reporting on what we're doing for green and investing green, you know, and and what that means, I don't fully know. And that's what hopefully you can answer that. But what are you seeing on that standpoint? So not only pressure for helping the farmers, but political pressure here too. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, we're we're early in the new administration, obviously. And um, there's, I, I spend decent amount of the mornings trying to read up on and then decipher speculation versus um, reality, but there is uh, there's definitely going to be a push to 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 go the green direction, and and I think specifically if I were to pick one thing that probably garners the most monitoring, it's going to be the carbon markets and see if one actually is established that uh, that that is going to be successful here in the U.S. Um, from a banking standpoint, I mean, that it's, it's funny. I kind of sound like a broken record, but I, I sit here and struggle with what we need to s- strategically pick what role the bank plays in that. Now, do I want to go all in and say, uh, line up all the incentives for, um, our ag customers to make it as cheap as possible to work with Bremer if they, you know, check 99 out of a hundred sustainability or regenerative boxes, Probably not, but uh, some sort of happy medium is uh, is probably the right place to go. Um, from a from a federal go- government standpoint, I think time will tell. I um, I'm more of a 
somewhat reactionary uh, position on that just because um, I want to wait and see, make sure I'm not spending resources I don't need to spend. But I think from a bank's role, uh, everyone is in long-term sustainability and regenerative practices, including the banking system. So um, I also, you know, you could say this is contrarian, but I let subject matter experts um, do what they do best. And I know farmers know how to farm best. And I think we all know that uh, the farmers don't deliberately um, do practices to to release carbon. But at the same time, if they're um, if there's a way for a banking industry or other commercial industry to help um, mend that 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 gap to sustainable practices by having some sort of incentives, like a carbon market, for example, um, you know that that's that's probably very doable. I mean, we're looking at that the ethanol market. I, I, I I'm a firm believer that corn-based ethanol is probably not the 50-year solution, but that was the solution to get car manufacturers and consumers to understand what ethanol does and uh, before cellulosic or other types of ethanol maybe are the are the answer 30, 40 years from now. Um, but I, I don't see huge risks. So keep, keep uh, I want to keep pushing on this in terms of what is the bank's role in sustainability and how are you guys approaching it? Because I think with a lot of these things, you know, the bank is trying to help that farmer um, to be able to, you know, ensure that they've got the capital to invest. But the nature of it is they have to be fairly risk adverse. But in adopting some of these sustainability things, the farmer has to change and they have to do things that are different and are new to them. So what is your angle, I guess, on managing that risk and helping farmers to be able to overcome the risk, not only financial risk, but, you know, there's a larger risk at play here too. Yep. And and I think that really Bremer is a little more um, than average, probably a little more forward looking on the credit side of things from there, because my parallel that I draw to this would be transitioning to organic. Um, it, It is tough to walk into your banker's office and say, I'm going to transition over to organic. Um, do I have your blessing for two really rough years <laughs> in, in hopes that uh, I'll still be your customer in that third year when I'm when I'm knocking the cover off the ball? I, I see somewhat of the same, um, some of the same path on regenerative or or sustainable practices that that call it investing in green. Um, the bank's role there is just you have we as as an entire industry, the credit department's got to be nimble, and there is. Uh, there is weight that goes into the character of your customer. And I think we all know um, certain customers will do quite well to pivot into some of these sustainable practices. And at the same time, uh, banks have to be risk adverse, but they can somewhat invest in their customers as well. And and they can be there to help help guide them in some of these sustainable um, sustainable decisions. I mean, right now, yeah, I got a list that I'm trying to make uh, that would be call call it acceptable, sustainable um, egg techs to partner with so that if a customer does come to me and say, um, or instead of sustainable regenerative, Hey, Mark, um, you know, my, my farm's 3000 acres. I want to really focus on these 1000 acres to be, um, some sort of regenerative practice so that if, you know, there actually is a stamp one day for regenerative, I'm, I'm ahead of the curve, help me 
I, I can absolutely help that customer do that. So I, I see it more of a, a guidance role rather than a, um, a full-fledged leadership role. I guess I'd put it that way. Do you have any examples of customers that have had a, a tough transition, whether it be to organic or regenerative or anything? Maybe it's changing crops, whatever it might be. Examples where, say, the bank has been hesitant to give them the blessing to do this, but everything turns out pretty well after two, three, four years? Yeah, the, the extreme example I can come up with is industrial hemp. Um, that That's one, you know, call it a new crop. Um, some, some growers get excited by looking at the bottom lines of like industrial hemp for CBD production. Um, there's a lot of labor that goes into that, <laughs> but, um, that has been a success. And that's where, um, I know other banks too, if a farmer wants to start growing industrial hemp for CBD production, you probably aren't going to be flipping dozens of acres. You're probably flipping like one or two last year and the year before that was a major uh, a major credit investment from the lender to let a customer flip to that because um, the inputs are high, the outputs can be high, but your your risk of loss is uh, astronomical. <laughs> so uh, I think that that's a good example of testing the waters of, all right, this is getting out of our quote unquote comfort zone. Um, if, if this works on one or two acres, let's try to take more in the future. Um, but I'd say industrial hemp's the, the top one that comes to mind. Um, some of the other ones I, I, to go, to go back to organic and transition, that's probably the other ones that you see quite a few success stories. 10 years ago, that was a, uh, I feel like your only option to transition was to sell at, um, sell at, uh, at, um, sell your transition crop at conventional prices. Now you're seeing niche markets pop up. You're seeing non-GMO soybeans. Absolutely. In the last five years, you're seeing some, uh, some, um, commodity handlers. Like I, I know you guys had pipeline on in the past, some commodity handlers, like pipeline trying to give some sort of premium for transition crops. You have some of this big CPG companies trying to do the same things. So I think that that is, uh, that's also helping mitigate the risk where, where I'd also see this going forward would be, um, on the regenerative side or sustainable side, as those practices pick up, lenders will become a lot more uh, open to, uh, supporting those decisions and helping make those decisions for a farmer if there's some sort of uh, uh, hedge of risk on the other side. So for example, on regenerative, if you have an offtake that is connected with a CPG company that has the consumer base that's really trying to pull uh, pull the the label on the back of the box to tell you what practices were done for growing that specific crop on that farm and the farmer could ultimately partake in the upside there, that that would help the lender's standpoint uh, astronomically for, for diverting risk. So yeah, it's really having that whole plan put all the way together on here's what I want to do, here's how I'm going to get paid, here's how I'm avoiding risk. But what else, What are some of the other pressures that Bremer or just the banking industry overall is getting to not only helping that farmer or, or looking at risk in terms of the bank obviously has to continue to make money and continue to you know, invest smart, but what are the pressures around like social impact investing or you know some of the things like that too? Some of these other things that are a little bit tougher to 
to quantify than than dollars. Yeah. No, no, you're right. There, there, there are some other outside pressures on the banking industry like that. Um, the the whole concept of of uh, kind of uh, I, I forget what the term is, but it's something like uh, do good or or act good investing funds, and some of them have real power, <laughs> really, really strong power, and actually really nice track records. <laughs> um, I, I've, I've worked with a few in the past. They, they, they do really well, um, which is super exciting. Um, you know, from the bank standpoint, uh, if it is a depository bank, you know, you, you are responsible for protecting your, your depositors, which are also your customers. And that's the money that you're ultimately lending out. Um, little, little different on the farm credit side, but I think it, the, the, um, morals are, are, well aligned. Um, so yeah, it's, it's just, uh, there is certainly is some outside pressure there, but, um, you know, if it is a, an entirely new crop, for example, um, the ultimate risk mitigator for a lender is U S crop insurance hands down. So if we can offset some, a portion of the risk on the U S crop insurance program, the light gets a lot greener, even if it's really outside the box for for a farmer. If if there is a T yield, or if there's a beat on becoming a T yield at some point, um, or if farmers have some success in the area, I, I don't know if I want to walk the path of a third party crop insurance, but maybe. Um, you know, I think that the U.S. crop insurance is really the ultimate risk mitigation of, like you said, Mitchell. A farmer comes in, has a plan. Um, the banker certainly has a has a role in helping um, sharpen the pencil on the plan and, and maybe making introductions and playing that advisor role of saying, you know, your price potentially could be higher here if if uh, if we make some introductions to new markets or your inputs might be cheaper here if you have you ever heard of doing this. So that's that's kind of the role of, of the lender in that situation. But ultimately, crop insurance is the first risk mitigation tool out of the box. Do you think crop insurance or anything else for that matter might look different now as we go forward with the new administration? What might be changing? I would be cautious to say that's going to change much. Um, I'd almost want to ask the farmers (laughs) that, you know, the farmers that I talk to, that's that's the last thing that they hold closest to their heart is U.S. crop insurance. And as we all know, Story after story after story around the world of you know mass warfare sometimes stems from from or actually often stems from food scarcity and the U.S. crop insurance program um, you know albeit that that subsidy of fifty to sixty percent of premiums depending on you know somewhere in that ballpark uh, really helps the U.S. farmer. Uh, stay in the game for at least another year in in, in a tough situation. That doesn't exist in other countries, and that's what leads to um, sometimes very drastic situations. So do I see changes to that? There absolutely could be tweaks. In my opinion, probably for the better. You're seeing a lot more crops jump on the tea yields or first-time tea yields in a county. Industrial hemp, for example, that's that's expanded drastically. You're seeing... Uh, Corn and soybeans pop up in new counties in, in the Dakotas further west that if, you know, 10 years ago, people would have laughed you out of the room if you would have said there would have been a, a soybean tea yield out there. Um, so I think that that things are certainly improving. Um, do I see any major changes there? Probably not. Just because that is, uh, if I were a farmer, that'd be the last 
the the last uh, item on on the federal agenda that I would probably want heavily tweaked. I think one of the things there though is is um, how to integrate some of these more innovative components on sustainability and and yeah I mean we've been directly in on this on our farm too that in 2020 we raised mustard and barley and rye and yeah there's no tea yield for that and we took on 100 <laughs> percent of the risk ourselves but even some of the things like farmers planting green or relay cropping or interseeded cover cropping or some of these. Um, systems that can really help to sequester a lot of carbon and can really improve soil health in a short amount of time. Uh, our crop insurance guys are like, eh, I don't know about that. So what's your, what's your thoughts there? How do I guess, how do we just continue to show here's, here's what we're doing and here's why it is risk adverse. And for overall crop insurance, how do we, how do we show here's how we're being innovative and support us? That is a excellent question, excellent excellent point. I mean, the the parallel there to tea yields is pretty strong. It's it's if no one's ever done it, RMA is probably not interested in 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 getting rid of the risk. If one or two operations are trying it, then then that goes into a different box, and that's where I see the role of potentially co ops. Even it really. Uh, helping drive that. So I, I absolutely see value in all the practices that, that you just laid out, Mitchell. And, and you know, a common one for especially the, the operations up north would just be cover cropping or keeping, keeping the soil covered in, in some way, shape, or form throughout all 12 months of the year. I could absolutely see um, U.S. crop insurance incorporating the value in that. I, I think it's going to take uh, a little more adoption and i'm sure they're going to break it down to a county level but uh as you said growing mustard and and jumping into the the pool first is uh is is fantastic and it ultimately helped everyone else in your county as you did that and even the adjacent counties but i think we're going to see more and more of that on the crop uh the cropping practices it just is going to take a little time for um you know a few of the kids to jump in the pool first that that certainly is something though that even from a lender standpoint i need to be very aware of where some of those trends are happening so that we can advise customers or be aware of customers who are the ones jumping in the pool to try to help this thing move forward i i totally could see rma valuing uh some of those practices probably not not tomorrow but it, it could be relatively soon i would hope so i mean you guys know those practices aren't necessarily uh, free, and yes, they have returns, but sometimes it's not next month. Um, it would be it would be nice to be able to hedge away some of that risk. All right, everyone, we'll hear more from Mark Schober after a short break. In this next part, you're going to hear us talk a lot about RMA. And for those who don't know, RMA stands for Risk Management Agency, which is part of the USDA. Back to our conversation. Uh, a lot of those people that are jumping in headfirst are our listeners. Any quick advice on them beyond talk with your local crop insurance person and your local banker or whoever to say, hey, I am doing something different beyond just call your local guy and, and ask them for help? That's a good question. Um, you know, in my experience, it's partnering with the right crop insurance advisor. I always, you know, if there is one that has a strong relationship directly with RMA, that does go a long ways. Um, because RMA, 
you may think being a, a government uh, organization maybe has ears closed. They don't. They, they actually are open to trying to improve the process and expand the program as efficiently as possible. So I've worked with crop insurance agents in the past that have, have talked about cropping plans that have been somewhat one-off and directed them to RMA and actually had conversations directly with RMA, <laughs> with the grower to talk about these and try to extract the value. So, um, you know, certainly get in touch with, with your crop insurance advisor and see if there is a path to RMA. Otherwise, um, you know, trying to get some sort of path to, to RMA directly is, is probably um, an acceptable route as well. Um, and, and my other tip on, on that too is, um, you know, just be conscious of how uh, big of a jump you're taking into the pool. Um, like on, on hemp, one, one acre or so is probably a great, a great start. Or if you're growing a non-insured crop, you know, a few acres to test it out. Um, if, if everyone's lucky enough to have their own back 40, that's a great testing spot for it. Um, another spot as well would be a relationship with, um, with some of, somewhat of a local university. Um, I know uh, Iowa State's ears are usually open to helping in that uh, that function of new cropping programs or new new farming programs. Um, NDSU is, is another good one for that front because they obviously have a have have a, a different type of path to people like RMA or 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 uh, or others as well. But um, between those two, um, you know networking of, of, of telling others that you're doing, telling, telling others of what you're doing is also probably important that that really should probably be the third point because, uh, like I said before, you're not, you're not directly, uh, um, evil enemies with other growers in your County. We're kind of all in this together. And if something's working on your farm, chances are the soils are probably similar to, to some of the other, uh, neighboring farms. You may want to share that information and maybe the, the feedback you're going to get is, uh, well, actually think about tweaking that same practice just a little bit further to the left because, uh, I'm doing it that way and it's yielding better results than what you're doing. So I, I'd be vocal about it. I wouldn't be overly secretive about, um, some of the, the, uh, some of the first time tests that you're running. So I'm going to shift gears on you a little bit here, and I'm going to bring up yield versus profitability, which I'm sure is something you deal with a lot. And I never think, heard of it. Never heard of it. <laughs> no. Yield or profitability? No, both. Neither, <laughs> Either one. <laughs> I think it's changed a lot, particularly in the last five years as margins were really, really tight for farmers. And I think there's a new mindset looking at profitability profitability versus yield. Do you struggle with that with some guys where guys still have the mentality that they need to see the biggest yield all the time and and they struggle with putting together the full cash flow and seeing the whole picture of profitability versus what that big yield might cost you? Zach, if it's not 300 bushel corn, it's not even worth it. Yeah, You're from totally Washington, Iowa, it. Mitchell. <laughs> <laughs> yep, yep. Uh, it, it's... Uh, I, I could talk for a long time on this. Uh, unf not unfortunately or fortunately, people have have caught on in the last five years of yield versus margin. And my spiel on it is: there's certainly two trends of farmers: yield farmers and margin farmers. Those aren't polar opposites with a, a force field between them. There's a blend, and you could be one percent one direction, ninety nine the other, and anything in between. 
So on, on, uh, on, on a farm of 10,000 acres, for example, that has different types of offtake contracts in place, they may be um, uh, pushed towards generating higher yields in a smaller farmer who maybe doesn't have as advantageous of offtake agreements in place because the larger farmer is going to get a higher price per bushel on any uh, on any additional a, uh, yield per acre over X or something like that. That's getting kind of complicated, but that's the far end of the spectrum. Do I see... Um, you know, an issue of farmers not understanding yield versus profitability. No, I think I think they do. They're doing a really good job of understanding that now because with all the different solutions and farmers getting hounded constantly by by input providers of saying try this, try that. I'll give you a few gallons free. Just get, give it a whirl and, and and try to get you into the program. Um, everything has to be adjusted to prove some sort of ROI, and usually that's not directly correlated to only yield. I mean, some successful farmers don't have 300 bushel an acre corn. They have very cheap inputs and they're only pushing, you know, slightly over county average. Um, and they're focused somewhat on a on some sort of risk mitigation on a marketing plan. I, I, I'm a huge advocate of that, especially in today's markets. Holy smokes, you could offset, offset some risk there. Um, but, you know, having cheap inputs and, and average yields could get a stronger bottom line than just strong yields, super expensive inputs. I think we saw this sometimes on um, on some of the, uh, the the twin row planted corn in the beginning. That was that was worked really well if you could manage your nitrogen prices and you could really really side dress uh, nearly nonstop. But uh, if you lost track of of your nitrogen prices on that operation, you could get smoked. You could still grow. 280 bushel corn, um, you could have the bins bursting at the seams, but your input prices could fall out of whack really fast. And then your margins are, are tipping the wrong way. I think part of this to me, you know, is as you're looking at that profitability in the bottom line and whether it be by wanting to reduce inputs or fine tune some of those things, part of that is a multi-year process to be able to really get there. Um, and one of the concerns that a lot of growers have is their operating note is an annual operating note. Any thoughts on, you know, any movement on that arena where, you know, maybe the banking industry could offer growers longer term operating notes with saying, hey, this is going to be a three or a five year program to really be able to get this profitability to work? Absolutely. That would be a direction that uh, not many lenders have gone, but I, I'm, I would be an advocate of that, or I guess I am an advocate of that, of trying to, trying to look at a bank's credit risk for a customer a little differently, um, especially on new practices. Uh, because if, if a lender is um, truly a partner to the, the operation, um, being an inhibitor of, of incorporating those types of practices, that somewhat contradicting. Um, so at the same time, you don't want to be uh, uh, a catalyst of making the wrong decision or, or pushing them down a, a wrong path. But I, I would see, I would imagine lenders are going to um, somewhat change the, the, the makeup of the one-year operating loan um, in some capacities. Maybe it's 20% of that falls off and, and goes into a, a special two or three year uh, 
uh, loan because we could we could all see, for example, land rents maybe are are, are something that'd be fitting to stay on a one year note. Um, but I could see there being maybe a hybrid of something that's annually and then something that's that's done every two or three years or something like that in a special situation. Um, some lenders have have tried to to do that and partner with um, with off takes to try to decrease that risk. Um, so, uh, you know, partner with an off take that, uh, that is going to guarantee some sort of higher price for that farming practice. And then, um, the bank isn't taking all that risk. If that, if there's a contract in place on that farm for, um, for getting a higher price for that, that farming practice, or maybe for that specific commodity. Um, so yeah, I, I, I think the, uh, there could be some revamps on on the structure of operating lines of credit like that. It's a very good point. What about the interests of farmers versus agribusinesses? Do you find that those positions are aligned or opposed when it comes to making changes? Some are very opposing and some are totally aligned. Um, I, I've seen both. Uh, Sometimes on the agribusiness side, they they're uh, that's just a barrier to entry in the industry is is to not change anything because they have somewhat of a of a lock on the process. Um, I see that probably getting less and less over time, and I would see that the 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 um, the incorporation of new practices on farm will likely uh, draw stronger correlation to agribusiness strategy as well. Um, a huge catalyst of that of that would be if the consumer had a pull on it. Um, you know, w- we hear all these bu- buzzwords of um, of of traceable products and and sustainably grown products. We all know the ultimate catalyst is if the farmer is going to get paid higher ultimately by the consumer paying more. Um, so that has improved in the last five to ten years. Um, you know, probably didn't exist whatsoever 15 years ago. It, it's probably going to get stronger and stronger in the next, um, you know, few years and, and hopefully continue to pick up steam. Cause I think that, uh, consumer pull is the most powerful element there. A bank can play a role to try to make those, those things happen, but consumer dollars speak the loudest. So as you're looking at one, and as we look to start kind of wrapping things here too, but as you're looking at the future of working with these farmers and what's coming down the pipeline, how are you factoring some of these things into that long-term planning, especially around like carbon, for example? Are you able to really factor that in today? And how are you guys factoring in the price of carbon? Any any things that you're looking at there in terms of what that carbon is going to be worth, you know, a couple of years down the road? Any insight on that? Totally. It's uh we're still really early in that process, to be very honest with you. And I think the lending industry overall is. You have a few one-off lenders or CPG companies that are going heavy into the research of these carbon markets to see what the um, what the potential revenue streams could be from it. I am uh, I'm cautiously investing resources and in being on top of that. Um, because I think if, if these are established in some way, shape or form, the bank certainly could play a role there. Uh, at the same time, um, well, I guess it, side off, I, I certainly have seen what has happened in, in other countries and, and see the upside and the downside to this where what could be interesting would be, um, 
this dilemma that occurs where if a carbon market's created, I want to do everything in my power to make sure that that value can stay inside the farm gate as best as possible. I would hate to see some sort of middleman come in there and not not manipulate the market, but essentially buy credit or offer uh, low prices for credits inside the farm gate and then sell them for high prices outside the farm gate. I think this has to be designed in a very win-win situation for all. Um, and, and when it comes to inside the farm gate, that's, that's an intricate decision. You need to make sure that that practice is, uh, going to ultimately generate higher revenue for you. Um, you want to make sure that you're not, uh, you know, not selling those credits for nothing, um, and, and make sure that this really is a long-term decision, especially if you have to change equipment out in some, some shape. Um, so it, it, uh, I'm, I'm optimistic about that market potentially coming it's you know the lender's role in there i'm I'm still kind of playing that out to be honest with you any hot take on uh some of the political side of this on the uh the growing climate solutions act or the carbon board or setting up like carbon on the board of trade what what's your thoughts on that i guess from your standpoint it could happen um you know then you are opening yourself up if it's that publicly offered, you're opening opening yourself up to speculation on the carbon market, which I, I have a hunch could could happen right out of the gates. Uh, we kind of see that with like RINs, for example. <laughs> um, but the, you know, from a political stance, I, I, I don't know where that could go. My, my jury's out on that. <laughs> I, I wish I had a good take for you, but I know, no, I, I get cool takes right now on that subject. Anything else kind of to, to leave us with or, or word for our listeners here? Uh, you know, one other thing I just uh, quick hit on is the um, the size of farm operation really shouldn't matter when it comes to to banks and lenders. You know, we, we get asked that pretty often. Um, you know, a bank of Bremer size, are you really just focused on that top 10% of, of farm size operations? The answer is absolutely not. And I, I really don't think any other banks play that game. Um, they are focused and, and we are focused on the small farmers eventually do become the large farmers because the large farmers do um, eventually turn over and and, and uh, morph into something new over time. So we, we really love working with small farmers, just like other lenders out there. Um, so th- there's really... Um, those small farmers, especially forward-looking ones that can make use of new ag techs, those are those are good customers. Those those help decrease risk. Um, makes it a little easier to take on the really small ones. It's fun. I'm debating on asking another question on uh, death. Okay, so what's your quick hot take on death tax and capital gains taxes there, and how you know my hot take seems like that's going to ruin the family farm shouldn't have done that mitchell i didn't mean it when i said do it (laughs) (laughs) that's uh i mean when when whenever those types of major tax issues pop up especially with new administrations my stance is really it is a heck of an excuse to go in and talk to your succession planner in one in in some fashion. If you're a farm operation, you don't have a succession plan in place. Let me rephrase that. If you are a business owner of any sort and you don't have a succession plan in place, just hearing us talk about this is an excuse to go in and talk. 
um, there's, there's nothing wrong with talking about that. If you've gone through this with, with someone else that's passed away, it's not, not necessarily a fun circumstance that, that adds a lot of extra stress to the situation. Um, but it doesn't have to be death. It can be just retirement. <laughs> um, so could there be changes? Absolutely. Would it be detrimental to, to the family farm if, if some of that death tax stuff changes? It certainly could. Um, I, since I'm, I'm not a financial advisor myself, um, my, my advice would be go in and talk to one and try to get your ducks in a row and position your assets in a way that, that can be as protective as possible. There are different ways to do it. And what, what makes it kind of hard is that every situation is truly different. And that's why it's, it's really hard to come on and, and just give some advice that, that would be overarching, important to everyone. That advice is go talk to someone. That's all I can say. Zach, I was just going to say, you know, we were talking about profits and yields earlier and how, you know, never heard of that. Well, Mark just said something about farmers retiring. I've never <laughs> heard of that either, Yeah, but I mean, it sounds interesting. It does. That's even more rare than profitability. <laughs> you you retire That's and then true. you 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 uh come back to being a, a hired hand just around the combine. That's that's it. You got to know how to work the thing. But yep, that's That's called living the dream. Yep. That is fa- that's a fact. Exactly. Exactly. That is it for Fieldwork today. Our show is produced by Annie Baxter with a lot of help from Lori Stern, Amy Mayer, Mike Langseth, and Corey Suzuki. Kristen Schmidt helps us out with social media. Ellie Lyons does our marketing and Lauren Humper is our project coordinator. Thank you to all the technical directors at American Public Media who help us record and mix the show. Be sure to check us out on social media where we are at Fieldwork Talk on all the usual channels. And of course, we would love it if you wrote us a review to help others find us. Don't forget to leave us a voicemail, call in with your comment or a question at 651-228-4810. That's 651-228-4810. Thanks for listening. We will catch you guys next time.